Welcome. I'm Dr. Vinay Prasad. I'm a hematologist oncologist, and I'm associate professor of medicine at the University of California, San Francisco. In my professional life, I see patients, I teach trainees, and I do research in healthcare policy. This is Plenary Session. Plenary Session is a podcast at the intersection of medicine, oncology, and health policy, and you're listening to Season 3. On this week's episode. On today's Plenary Session, I have an interview with Alistair Monroe. He's a pediatric registrar in the United Kingdom, and he is an expert in tracking COVID's impact on children from a health perspective. You won't want to miss this discussion. But first, a plug. On Plenary Session, we've heard listener feedback, and we're going to try something new. We're going to take our long episodes, and we're going to put them out piecemeal, a little bit, a little bit, a little bit, just as you've asked. And then we will see what happens and how people listen. So, the experiment's on. If you like this podcast and want more content, follow me on Twitter at vprasadmdmph. Check out the YouTube channel, vinayprasadmdmph. Patreon backers will get access to the slides for lectures I give on Plenary Session. Want to hear from us? Email us your question at plenarysessionpodcast at gmail.com. It's the holiday season here at Plenary Session, and that means it's time for our semi-annual pledge drive. That's right. Plenary Session is supported by Patreon backers. you got to go to patreon.com, find Plenary Session. And if you are a planner, if you're a fan of this show, you need to donate to this show to keep it going. Plenary Session has no other support. We don't do advertisements. We keep it pure. And so we are supported by small backers. So if you enjoy this podcast, you should support the show. If you don't enjoy this podcast, you shouldn't support the show. I wouldn't recommend it only if you enjoy the podcast. So on that positive note, we only do this twice a year, bug you. And it is that season. We're going to shift to today's episode. I'm back in plenary session HQ, joined once again by Alistair Monroe. Alistair Monroe is a pediatric registrar in the United Kingdom, and he is an evidence-based medicine expert and somebody who is taking a close look in multiple systematic reviews of the literature around COVID-19 in school-aged children. Alistair is also a guest of this podcast before. Alistair, it's a pleasure to have you back. It's a real pleasure to be back. Thanks, Benai. I wanted to start by a topic that, and of course, I didn't tell you what we're going to be talking about, so I like to keep my guests guessing, but I wanted to start with a topic that I think is something you've reflected on. Do you feel that in this increasingly online world of SARS-CoV-2 discussion, that there are camps that are extremist? And by that, I mean, in one extreme, there's a fear-mongering camp. Everything is the worst that could ever be. And in the other extreme, there's a camp that literally thinks nothing is going on. I mean, I don't know what that camp is, a completely delusional camp. Um, and, and one struggles online to try to guide the ship somewhere between absolute denial and absolute everything about this virus is the worst virus on earth. Do you feel this pressure? And, and how, do you, how do you think about this? Yeah, um, I definitely do think that that's the case. And it's been a real struggle, actually, um, in terms of trying to communicate a lot of the science around this. Uh, I'd love to blame the politics for it. And I I do think that's certainly played a role, particularly 
um for you guys in the in the us because it, <laughs> it, it feels like a lot of what happened was really um you know the administration um which is you know soon to be no more but took um uh, you know quite a unique view on the pandemic <laughs> in the early stages yeah. uh and you know i think was and i think was re- viewed really as just being pretty pretty dismissive um and then of course there were as you say uh, uh more more fringe elements you know that that range from it's 5g it's not real there isn't a virus to yeah there's a virus but actually really no one's dying it's just we're just counting up deaths that would have happened anyway and you know but but all sort of down that end of the spectrum and and the problem is that the response to that from uh you know the the infectious disease and epidemiology community in particular was you know hardcore we've got to show everyone how bad this is mm -hmm. uh and you know it's not hard to do in many ways because it's killed a million people and uh, that by and large should be by itself ample evidence really for, for what's going on. It's not, it's not a hard case to make, but I think what you're talking about is where really um, in, in an effort to sort of, you know, people see those numbers. And then I think when people uh, realize that, you know, the public wasn't perhaps as terrified or uh, I don't know, uh, falling into line or whatever as as much as people would have liked that more was needed more uh fear i don't know was yeah. was needed and there was just this sort of strange focus on you know elements of this infection that i guess we we really see for a lot of other infections rare rare stuff but once you infect millions and millions of people rare all at stuff once, is common yeah rare stuff is it's common. relatively common yeah, yeah. Uh, but but you know the the here then the absolute risk and relative mm. risk get a bit get a bit muddled up and also the risk of something you know the, although the risk of you getting infected was high the risk you know per infection of uh, once you're infected the risk of having some of these rare events was not necessarily more common than for a lot of other infections but a lot of it started getting blown out of proportion but anyway i mean this this was particularly acute online i guess on twitter as as it always is it's strange actually when you spend a spend a while on twitter uh you know doom scrolling and (laughs) (laughs) yeah seeing all this stuff it's sometimes a bit weird to go back into real life and go god you know i can't believe you know, people seem to think that you know we're all going to drop dead of myocarditis from from COVID. Yeah, and people and people at work are like, "What?" <laughs> what, what I feel what, the same way. You, yeah, what are you talking about? <laughs> I've never heard of that. <laughs> They're like, "What are you talking about?" I um, yeah, and these are do- and these are doctors, yeah, you know, who yeah. are who are treating people with with the COVID. Who yeah. are like, I have never heard of anything you're talking about. What is this argument? And then they're like, uh, you're like, oh, you hear about T2-weighted cardiac MR? What are you talking about, T2-weighted? The patient feels fine. Get the hell out of here. What are you doing? Um, Yeah, no, I find the same exact feeling. And I feel like as much as I try to not be affected by these polar extremes, particularly online, um, I I don't know. It must creep into my own thoughts about it. you know, just for one instance, like, you know, everything is through this lens. So, um, you know, somebody tweets that, of course, there's no excess death, which is crazy. Then somebody tweets that there is excess death, which, of course, there is. There is an excess death. But then I want to point out that, like, look, you know, much of that excess death is COVID. 
Some of that excess death might be hospitals and people's behavioral change in different ways in response to COVID. And it's going to take a long time to sort that out. And, and that's, we shouldn't forget, there's an empirical question here that someday we want some good researchers to go in and kind of parse this out a little bit and, and get some sense about were there things that were missteps and were there missed opportunities? I mean, that would be a useful learning exercise. But then I feel like you try to come in and say that in the middle of these warring parties, and it is quite, quite difficult. Yeah, and it's a dead zone. It's, it's a, dead a dead zone, zone as well because, <laughs> because, on, because on Twitter, no one is interested. <laughs> no one is interested. <laughs> no one is interested because, because on Twitter, masks are either the tool to end the pandemic or masks don't do anything at all and they may even kill you. And actually, <laughs> some of those excess deaths are due to masks. We're killing people with the masks. You know, their CO2 is going up and they're just, you know, dropping dead in the street from, from masks. And it's the same with everything. And if you tweet one of, you know, and if you take one of those two things, you are, you know, your retweets and your likes are going through the roof and you're getting followers and you're thinking, oh, people like, oh, this is, you know, this is good. This is good stuff. And, and, you know, it is, and you can sort of see people taking these, like, you know, there's a few famous examples, mm -hmm. I think, of particular, you know, Twitter, Twitterati who, um, whose emojis and all caps and stuff. <laughs> <laughs> Breaking news. Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. We're going to get into and, that. And, and again, and it cuts both ways. If you're saying, you know, and again, if you're saying, you know, that it's all completely made up, People love it, and uh, the, yeah, it, the way it polarizes the discussion is 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 so unhelpful. Uh, it's really difficult to inject any nuance because the, t the thing is that if you if you do try and come into a conversation where uh, you know, like you said, and, and you know, instill a bit of balance or to suggest uh, you know that there's some other considerations, then people just go, "Oh, so you don't believe it's real?" I know. Or uh, yeah. the other, you go, oh, so you think that we should just be locked down forever and that, uh, you know, and you're like, well, no, that's not, that's not what I said. And, and it happens all the time. And you just end up arguing uh, or people end up arguing with you about things you don't believe and haven't said. Um, and it's not even just, you know, what we might think of as, you know, uh, you know, the loony bin or whatever, but it's, it's academics. Yeah, no, I've well, seen, yeah, but, I, they, they argue with some things you haven't said um, because they, they're, everyone is thinking four steps. Like if he said this, somebody might think it means this and therefore they would have the wrong impression and therefore I need to go in really hard and go up, uh, go up. Uh, and yeah, this. And, I, and I heard, you know, I was, I listened to, to Wes on your podcast oh, as well, okay. who was saying that, you know, that that's, that's crept into a lot of the, you know, the a lot of major scientists or academics. They're thinking about what can I, what can I research in case it's, you know, in case it's taken the wrong way. You know, he gave the example of seasonality yeah. and uh, and that kind of thing. And and you know, I think it's, I think the same thing go up with herd immunity. Oh uh, yeah, you a lot of people just, that. you know, no, you can't. I, and they, you know, there's loads of stuff you just can't, you know, there's just things you can't say, you know. There's I, just... I, I felt I was treading on thin ice when, you know, I'm reading all these increasing calls to like, first they're like, um, people who don't want to get vaccinated should be encouraged to get vaccinated. People who don't want to get vaccinated um, should be mandatory vaccination or you can't participate in society. People who don't want to get vaccinated, we should, we should shoot them all in the head. I mean, they fucking get, they're really getting riled up. You know, they keeps escalating, it keeps escalating. What are we going to do with these people who don't want to be vaccinated? I was like, look, let's just, let's just take it one step at a time. One, there's 
there's at least 60% of people who really are keen on getting vaccinated. And there are not enough vaccines. So let's just do that first 60 first. And then, just like the iPhone, people are going to see us getting vaccinated. We're not all going bonkers. They're going to want to get another 10, 20%. Easy. Easy. They're all going to jump on. They're going to see how much fun it is, how much a good time we're having getting vaccinated and not dying of SARS-CoV-2. They're going to want it. They're going to want it. Okay, so now we get up to 80%. The other fraction may have already had COVID in a large chunk of that, especially in this country where it's running rampant. And Particularly the people who perhaps <laughs> don't believe that they yeah, need the vaccine. Exactly. Well. I mean, those two, uh, there's a non, it's an overlapping Venn diagram. And then we may be at something called I don't know if we should say it, but there might be don't some herd immunity. Yeah, don't say it. Don't say it. There might be some herd immunity going on. And then you don't need to shoot them. You don't need to punish them because it doesn't matter. You can let it go. Let it slide. You know, um, it's just like, you know, early in the pandemic, somebody's like, uh, oh, somebody walked into a Home Depot without a mask. And they're like, why didn't they call the police? I was like, you think, what is the goal of the interaction? The cop's going to go up there. So I don't want to wear a mask. And then he's going to be spraying, uh, you know, spraying the cop in the face. I mean, it's just going to promote the, vi- the virus transmission. You're not... You're not curbing it. Yeah, and I think that's a really, really important point, actually, that I've tried to say, tried to suggest a few times on Twitter to people who I'm sure are well-meaning, who, um, you know, have taken this quite... uh, I don't want to. Say, I mean, fear mongering is a really extreme way of saying it, and that. But, but that's some not necessarily are. Some what I mean, are exactly the some, label. Oh, fits. <laughs> some. Some. There are some people who are absolutely doing that. But even even people who you know just tend to focus a bit more on the negative or on the scare stories or all that sort of stuff. I'm sure a lot of it is well-meaning, and that the 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 purpose of it, even if they're not aware of it is to try and convince people or try and get people going to think you know this is bad we need to be doing more about it but but the fact is it it has the opposite effect it's so counterproductive because the people who are dismissive if they smell you over egging something if they exactly smell the exaggeration, that's right that's then they right. go i knew i knew it i knew it was all being hyped up you'd say all this and it, and it, and it, and it stinks you. of it i mean even i can smell it a mile away that that is uh, yeah. you're spinning it a little hard yeah i'll give exactly. you uh, and those, yeah and those people are either they're either not listening to you know the New York Times or, you know, whoever these academics are because they don't run in those circles, they're not paying attention. Or if they hear it, it just puts them off because it just, you know, smells of exaggeration. It just confirms their beliefs that people are, you know, overhyping it. But the people who are listening are the people who are already convinced and are pretty terrified. And actually then they're hearing, oh my gosh, even if I don't get symptoms, I could die if I go for a run because I might have organ damage and that is my brain god and that is really one that kills me oh but i gotta tell you one thing real quick so um i recently tweeted i was talking to a colleague and this colleague lives in florida and you know this country is you know we're polarized and 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 california and florida they're as uh they're both warm but they're as different as they come and um in california you know cases are on the on the rise unfortunately very unfortunately um and um they've issued some new orders of course outdoor dining is banned to the, I'm not exactly certain to what extent outdoor dining was contributing, but nevertheless, it's it's off the table. And then the playgrounds, they taped up those playgrounds. They know what's going. They know what's going on at those playgrounds. And you know what's going on at those playgrounds? Rampant SARS-CoV-2 transmission. You want you want me to prove it? It's gonna be a little tricky to do that. <laughs> but we wrote those off. Meanwhile, I talked to my colleague in Florida. In Florida. 
Um, my colleague was saying, there's like, oh, yeah, people haven't, in, people haven't uh, dining indoors in a restaurant. And I'm like, what are you talking about? Indoor dining in a restaurant? And he's like, oh, don't worry, don't worry. When you go to the restroom, you got to wear your mask when you walk around. I'm like, that's not going to do it. That's not going to stop it. What are you talking about? And so then I tweet. You know, um, I was like, uh, you know, in Florida, they're having indoor dining in restaurants. And here in California, we're one step away from a mask mandate in your own shower. I was like, this is, you know, that's, that's my tweet, which I thought was funny. I didn't hear you laugh, but I see you. I think it's funny. Okay. <laughs> I'm laughing on the inside. I'm laughing on the inside. That's 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 the hallmark of a good comedian. You get the you get a little uh, a little smirk out of your audience. Okay. Anyway, so I thought it was funny, and then I uh, I go look a few hours later, and it's like obviously a million comments. How dare you do this, you son of a bitch! And I was like, what are you talking? All, people all hate me for saying. And I'm like, it was a joke. My God, it was a joke. And 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 then they're like, oh, so you want to live in Florida? Why don't you go to Florida? I'm like, I'm no, I obviously don't want to live in a place that has circulating SARS-CoV-2 in an indoor dining hall. No, of course not. They're both bad policy. That's what people don't see. There, You can have extremes in both directions. There is something in the middle. It's called common sense. But anyway, I, I just tell this story because I was like, I also want to talk about, I mean, I, I think I feel obliged to mention the elephant in the room, which is that, you know, people are at home and as much as everyone thinks that they are doing okay, I think a lot of people are are suffering. You know, we're a social animal. And when you're at home and you're suffering, um, and the thing that's causing your suffering is to some degree outside of human control, it's a lot easier to find the the villain of the day and, you know, jump in their mentions or or vice versa. Um, the other thing I wanted to say real quick about your, what you were pointing out is I think the feedback system of Twitter is, is the core problem. Like it rewards you. You get a dopamine hit every time you go, you go push yourself more in one direction or the other. And it just encourages people to go more in whatever direction they started it. So they could either go more in the, in the, you know, it's, it's the sky is falling or more in the direction of their, it's a nothing burger. Um, both are wrong. Oh, and then the last thing I want to, well, actually I'll save it for the next thing. You're going to say something and then I'll, I'll bring up my next topic. Yeah, I mean, I guess the best example I've got for this really is the thing I talk about more than anything else, which is which is schools and is COVID in children. And I've just, you know, the number of times you'll send out a tweet and people will be like, oh, but here was an example of when a child did catch COVID. Yeah. And you're like, well, yeah, I'm not saying children, you know, what's difficult is that the message is subtle, which is that children do get infected. Of course they do. Children do transmit it. And, and, and you know, some have died to... very rarely, but some have died. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And it's not, and you know, the transmission is not negligible. Fortunately, the, you know, no death of a child is negligible, but the, the rates at which this disease is fatal in children is, is by, you know, normal infection standards is normal. You know, it's, it's the equivalent to other respiratory viruses for which we don't, you know, we're not too concerned. But, you know, if you try and talk about the transmission and say, oh, look, it's not as bad as adults. It's and that's good because this is really different to other respiratory virus, you know, pandemics and the ones that we normally have to deal with. And then people are like, oh, so that you think they don't get it or they don't spread it or oh spread it isn't gosh. happening in schools. So we don't need any infection prevention measures in schools. And, you know, you just say, well, no, that, that's not, I haven't said any of those things. In fact, you know, I, I, you know. I've been um, copying some flack recently from people saying, oh, so you don't think we need infection prevention in schools? I've literally published a paper with recommendations <laughs> for what infection prevention measures you should have in schools. Uh-huh. Now, you know, there's, you know, there may be some disagreement. A lot of people feel like uh, children should all be in masks when they're sat at classrooms at their desks. That's not the current policy in the UK. 
Um, I understand why, because they felt it's, you know, if kids are sat alone at their desk facing forward doing their work, having a mask on is probably not doing right. much when they're not socializing or whatever. Um, so I think that's fine. Some people really feel very strongly that they should have masks on all the time. If that was introduced, I, you know, wouldn't be bothered by that but you know the fact that i'm not shouting from the rooftops masks in classrooms suggests that i don't think but, do, but don't you remember all those school. cluster randomized trials of children wearing masks in classrooms that we did well i tried you know this is the point so, <laughs> I, I, so I, I tried to engage with someone about this on twitter and i said well look it's is there's basically there's, it's just a difference of opinion exactly you, there's, you know, no feel, opinion. there's no there's yeah, fucking opinion there's no fucking data there's no data there's, there's feel, no data yeah, that's on. right. Yeah, he's, and he, uh, I said, you know, you feel really strongly that they should wear them. I'm pretty indifferent. If, you know, if we said they had to wear them, that would be fine. And the reply was, it's not a matter of opinion. We have the aerosol science. Oh, the aerosol this, science. That, <laughs> and the thing is, you know, you just can't, you just can't, Twitter, unfortunately, can't. It's too much effort sometimes to spend. And let me let me unpack. I just want to unpack. Level of evidence doesn't explain. Doesn't explain children at their desks in classrooms wearing masks as a you know contributing factor. Anyway. And and I want to unpack that a little bit. I mean, I think like why are we critical of quote unquote the aerosol evidence? And the reason is. It would be it would be the same arrogance as somebody walking up to me, a cancer doctor, or you, uh, a pulmonologist, and saying, "I have a new drug that treats whatever condition you treat, uh, you know, idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis or you know, cancer." And I say, "Great, uh, show me show me the evidence this new drug helps." And then they're like, "Well, I did this pipetting experiment, and it looks like it hits the target." And I'm like, okay, so what happened when you did the human studies and, and you asked what happens in, you know, when you actually give it to people? Oh, I, I, I didn't do that. I was like, get, the fuck, get out of here. Get out of here. That's not data. I was like, we know that stuff's going to fail. And so similarly, although it is compelling and the aerosol hypothesis is, you know, intri interesting. I mean, I'm interested, just like I'm interested in little pipetting. Um, it's not relevant to the actual, in this case, it's even more complex. It's a social behavioral compliance Um intervention and that data unfortunately has almost no explicative ability about the actual question you're facing the policy decision um, and so it really is quite reductionist and and I think there's a there's a class of people who haven't played in the medicine public health ball game before and they're coming in from whatever ball game they've been in where you can live your life as a reductionist and maybe you're I don't even know if you're right or wrong because I don't know what sort of external tools they use to judge their success or failure but they, they're playing their reductionist ball game and then they come into my they come into my game and they think their reductionism works and I want to tell them you need to sit down I gotta explain to you reductionism in medicine that ain't going to get you far, my friend. That ain't going to get you past second year medical school. Uh, you got a lot to learn about empiricism and actual relevant data. And and that's the hard conversation to have on Twitter because people don't know that, I think. Yeah. And, and I get, and, you know, and I get the, the, the feeling that, you know, it's a bit like washing your hands. Like, you know, we haven't generated the evidence of washing your hands. And so then there's like a, a, a cost benefit scenario in, you know, this high risk situation because we're in a pandemic. And, but the fact, you know, the fact is even for washing your hands. So, for example, when they reopened um, schools for like the under tens in Denmark, they had they had to wash their hands every like ninety minutes, right? Mm -hmm. 
and they had to stop because <laughs> their hands were raw because they were literally because they were bleeding yeah, yeah, you know because yeah, that's yeah. what happened you know yeah. we all know you know the you know, healthcare workers who wash in our hands all the time with all of this stuff oh yeah you know it, eventually it does get sore and so there was there was a you know does washing your hands more reduce infections yes but even for pan washing there comes a point where if you're washing your hands too much actually the harms of that infection prevention measure outweigh you know the you know meager benefits of you know washing them every hour and a half as opposed to every three to four hours or whatever and so the same applies for mask wearing and and you know will apply for anything that if there's ways that it inhibits or that it causes problems if you don't know the actual effect size or you know you're you're sort of you're working on the assumption that it's going to be operating under not optimum conditions particularly when you've got kids wearing them in in classrooms um you know if it's a low risk environment there's going to be times where it is possible or or at least in someone's opinion the the marginal benefits would be outweighed by the risks and people should be should feel free to to have a disagreement and to talk about it without uh you know being being lambasted but you know, as you said before, masks have become somewhat a bit of a yeah. Uh, if, if they've kids, taken on a life of their own, really. In if this, kids didn't in wear masks, pandemic. how would I know who's going to vote Democrat someday? No. <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay, next question. I was reading this. Um, I don't know. I shouldn't have even looked. I should have known better when I looked. But I was reading a guidance from the American Academy of Pediatrics, um, who. You know, uh, oh, you've already slumped over. I know exactly over, uh, what you're going to ask me about. <laughs> well, I love the AAP because, um, they, you know, there's they, they really like sticking their nose in things where they have lousy data. I, a few years ago, we did some of their work on screen time, and I looked through the data, and I'm like, you know, uh, oh, God. They're like, they're like, no child should ever look at the screen, unless it's Sesame Street, in which case they can watch it because that's a good pro. I'm like, get, the, get out of here. What are you talking about? This data is garbage. And then I looked through the data, and it was very bad. And, and people should go back and listen to a podcast I did is like season two on this episode where we talked about the screen time papers. Um, okay. So anyway, now they got a new paper out and it's like, what happens for a kid who's recovered from COVID? And they put them in three buckets. I mean, so the bucket one, the asymptomatic child who recovered from COVID, to be honest, many of them may not have been labeled as recovered from COVID because they may have had the sniffles one day and, you know, the parents ignored them and they got better and who knows what they had. Um, okay, that's one. Um, uh, or actually asymptomatic. I don't even know. Okay. That's even worse than that. They don't even have the sniffles. Then there's mildly symptomatic. And then there's people who had fevers for more than four days and they've recovered. And then the guidance is for the asymptomatic and the mildly symptomatic, before they can exercise, you got to stop yourself, go to the pediatrician, and the pediatrician has got to ask him 14 questions, the 14-point uh, screening. And the screening is like, did anyone in your family die younger than the age of 50? Um, do you have any chest pain when you exert yourself? Which is a catch-22 because you've prevented them from exerting themselves until they can get clearance. So how would they know if they have chest pain when they exert themselves? Anyway, and if they did have chest pain when they exert themselves, I imagine they would volunteer that information uh, or look like they're not doing so hot. But anyway, you got to do this questionnaire if it's mild or asymptomatic. If it's fever for four days, they have to be seen by a pediatric cardiologist before they can return to exercise. And, and, then, and then when they return to exercise, they cite this British Journal of Sports Medicine paper, and it has this like huge color-coded chart. You know how much I love color-coded charts this year. Um, and it was just entirely fabricated. And it was like, for 10 days, do nothing. And then two days, you can go up to seven 
70% target heart rate. And then two more days go to 80%, but don't make it three days because then you got to go to 85%. And it had this huge thing. And it was like, only by day 17 can you exercise. And I'm like, are these people out of their mind? The kid recovers from COVID. Mommy, daddy, I want to go play. I want to go on the playground. And then the parent's like, no, we have to wait for that pediatric cardiologist appointment. And when is the appointment? It's actually in... April of next year because that's they have no availability in this country they have no availability and April of next year and until April Tommy you're gonna sit there on the couch and not exercise and then then you see him like running off to his like bedroom I, I'm imagining some some kid and then he's like no slow down slow down your heart your heart <laughs> I mean I just like, like I guess uh, the reason I laugh so much is it's so absurd it, but it's really serious it's a torture for the parents and what data do they have I mean they just made up the whole thing uh okay thoughts yeah, so I mean, this, uh, this, I suppose this is on two things, really. So one is um, that I, I'm not terribly keen on issuing guidelines where there is no evidence, because um, essentially, you're if what you're suggesting is wrong, then all you're doing is making sure that everyone does the, the wrong thing. And so you're potentially increasing harms. Um, variation in practice is not bad if the alternative is everyone doing the same bad thing so uh, uh, i'm already a little bit aghast yes, about that's that. a well put yes and the next thing is i guess yeah so the, the next issue is that this all came out of the um the hoo-ha um about myocarditis in athletes uh and you know a few a few papers which were i guess uh, turned out to be somewhat problematic uh in terms of their their methodology and you know some of the data it turned out was uh was not right uh, which is down <laughs> You're to be so polite. Uh, <laughs> which was a bit of a mystery yeah. it's still still a bit of a mystery um and you know just uh, an extraordinary amount of excitement about the possibility that young people with with covid might have myocarditis and, and this goes back to what we you know we touched on earlier these yeah. mri findings of totally uncertain significance yeah. or you know finding of abnormalities in imaging with completely normal blood tests markers of inflammation normal troponins and normal crps afterwards and you know and the fact that actually if you do these types of investigations at this scale for a lot of other respiratory viruses you find the same you find the same sort of yeah. stuff like we just don't always look for it and we're just not always quite so so focused on it so i guess it and but these people, people are so really people quickly. were so excited on twitter to see it. i'm like what well, you i'm i i kind of getting creeped out by how they were almost salivating over the other, like grateful to have these findings. I was like, this, I was like, you got to ease up. This is, this is not real. This is not. Well, this. I think this tied into, I think this tied into something that um, it were this sort of undercurrent that came out from, from, um, you know, one, one sort of side of Twitter, which was that when it became more clear that this disease was extremely lethal for the elderly, but for the most part, was uh you know usually a pretty benign acute illness for young people that a lot of young people i think well there was a feeling that a lot of young people therefore were not quite so concerned about going to bars going to parties you know uh indoor dining or whatever right. um right and uh that the message you know well you've got to you've got to stay home to protect other people was not enough i think that's how i think that's how some people felt and I think that therefore the response to that was to con try and convince young people 
this is really, really bad for you too. You should be really scared to get this infection. Right. And, uh, you know, part of that was talking about these asymptomatic people and the athletes getting myocarditis. And, um, you know, the, uh, there was a lot of focus on long COVID as well, which affects ah, that's uh, my younger next question. people. And, uh, you know, I felt like, and, and, you know, there was quite a big push for this. Uh, and I, I felt like maybe some of the focus was, as I said, to try and um, convince younger people that it, it wasn't just a disease for it was dangerous for the elderly, but was dangerous for them as well. Yeah. And I think the problem was that, you know, it, on the myocarditis thing, people were sort of jumped on it so quickly that there was a huge amount of publicity and interest and decisions made. And in this instance, guidelines published yeah. uh, before actually uh, a bit more evidence emerged. And it turns out that, uh, hang on, maybe this, maybe this isn't quite such a big thing yes or, or maybe this isn't really much of a thing at all yes um which you know and this goes back to basic principles i guess of clinical evidence which is that you know there's rarely ever is one paper a kingmaker. you know yes. it's you we don't we don't suddenly change all of science on it doesn't spin on one paper you wait for uh, you know, a body of evidence that's consistent because we know that medicine is complex and we're easily duped uh, and we find patterns where sometimes there aren't any. And I guess maybe this was uh, was a bit of an example. But we and, you know, and now we've got a except, great guideline for children to show for it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, except my papers, which are which are practice changing, all of them. Uh, but exactly. Yeah, yes. but, Mine too. Yeah, you're too. <laughs> but uh, yeah, we have this great guideline, which is. I don't know. I, I I I just last point that I'm going to move to the next topic. Uh, I just want to say that like I just really baffled that like do do people ever think through the practical consequences of a recommendation that you know so many children are going to have to see a pediatric cardiologist and what is a pediatric cardiologist going to do? Is, are, you want them to do echoes on all these kids or or EKGs? Those are interventions that are unproven. So I don't know what that's going to lead. They'll find a lot of nonsense. Um, and yeah. in fact, we're moving away from that in other settings. Uh, so just madness, madness. I mean, if you look at the data now as well. I mean, in the U.S., I think what you've had one million children with confirmed infections yeah, or something we um so is that one one million pediatric cardiology no no they had to have a fever for three days so maybe that's only two hundred thousand. no i don't know maybe that's one hundred thousand. and i don't think people know pediatric cardiologists they, they don't grow on trees there's so few Do of they them there, there's so few of them there's so few of them they have a hell of a time getting a job from what i understand these pediatric subspecialties um you know i don't know in in, in this country unfortunately so many of them get they make less money than the general pediatrician and it's very difficult to get a job um so it makes me question you know, they've got a lot of other stuff to do pediatric cardiologists because believe it or not some of their patients are pretty poorly yes i know <laughs> and that's pretty, the other thing yeah having pretty major surgeries on day one of life <laughs> on ecmo for a while uh you know it's uh, and, uh, they've got some pretty important stuff to well do. and the next one and then, then like the next clinic visit would be like the person with like you know massive vsd and all these sort of all these sort of um complications and then the next patient on the list would be like tommy um the the six-year-old who had covid um who's been wanting to play for five months and his parents have like tied him i don't know how they would suppress him from from raising his heart rate to 80 percent um, but somehow they've kept him in this like cocoon uh waiting for the appointment and and little tommy just wants clearance um and and when he finds out that it's just going to be a few questions and if he answers correctly he's going to get to play i don't think he's going to be too happy with this whole little setup um anyway okay next question Long COVID. Um, it's a very interesting topic to me because obviously um, 
It is, um, obviously people are suffering, that's for sure. I mean, people who have symptoms and they come to the doctor are suffering uh, and they deserve the very best uh, empathy, supportive care. Um, the second part, I think, is is that after any prolonged, protracted illness, recovery is not quick. I mean, we've all seen people, you know, weeks after pneumonia, um, even as I've gotten older, I'm not that old, but, you know, I get hit with a really bad cold or flu, and I think I've had him before. Who, who knows? But, um, uh, you know, it takes me a long time. I, I was once telling somebody that I swear to God I had a sore throat for like eight weeks after a cold. No, of course, um, you know, people people didn't take me seriously, but I was I was lozenging up. It's the man flu. The nice it's the man, the man flu. flu. Yeah, that's what I, that's what I tell people. It was a beast of a man flu. Uh, everyone else I knew was, was doing quite well. Um, but, you know, we, we know that there's prolonged recovery for many illnesses. Um, with COVID, um, I think surely that will be true. There will be people with long-term sequelae of COVID. At the same time, you know, not everything that happens after COVID is due to COVID. And I think it's really a challenge. It's a scientific challenge to attribute what's to COVID, what's not to COVID. Um, and and what can you do about it? Um, just like when the vaccine is deployed, there are going to be things that happen to people after getting a vaccine um, that may not be due to the vaccine. I saw um, I saw a recent report that said some people may have Parkinson's after COVID. But of course, um, the rate of Parkinson's was so, so low, it was unlikely to be due to COVID. Um, I didn't know that COVID would go into the um, portion of the brain and, and remove the dopamine or uh, whatever it is it's doing. I, I'm not aware of that. Um, so I guess my question is, how do you think about long COVID? We don't want to sensationalize it. We also don't want to downplay it. How do you how do you walk that middle path on long COVID? Well, uh, long COVID, I find it difficult to talk about as one single entity because it's it's probably, as you said, it's several different things. So um, I personally, I, f- I find the, 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 the name unhelpful because I think it sort of distracts from um, trying to work out what's best for each of these different groups of people. So like you say, you know, there's, we know that uh, after pneumonia, it can take people, you know, six months to a year after a bad bacterial pneumonia to get back to normal. And it's, and it's quite, you know, routine for them to feel really breathless and exhausted for time after that. So we'd expect the same after a bad viral pneumonia. For patients who are in intensive care, we know that there's a whole host of respiratory and, you know, mental health problems that can be associated with that. We know that following a lot of viral infections that people can get a, a sort of chronic fatigue type illness. And then there's also the, uh, there seems to be sort of a, a, a small portion of people who get COVID who afterwards have um, a sort of autoimmune reaction where they get persistent fevers uh, and some other GI symptoms. And then there's people, for, you know, I, I work with some colleagues who just who just still can't smell at all mm, yeah. or taste. And that's that's their only, that's the only symptom they still have. But that's, yes. that's and, long COVID by, yes, you know, yes. by the sort of definition. Um, and the problem is these groups of people don't all need the same stuff. In fact, yes. they the support they need is all quite different and the research questions you want for each of them are quite different so you know the doctor you want to see the investigations you want to have the treatments the the research that needs to be done is is sort of specific depending on what what you're talking about when you say long covid um and i think a lot of the public find it a bit confusing as well they think it's chronic covid infection so uh, you know that you're still infectious if you have it or and this kind of thing um so i i think personally i i prefer i personally prefer it being delineated by what you know what the specific uh elements or conditions are and i think that's starting to happen a bit more now in the uk the nihr uh, sort of did a scoping exercise recently that have broken it down into those 
groups actually more or less which is helpful um and then i think you know as you say trying to delineate some of the more vague um symptoms that could be uh, you know due to things other than covid i mean we're we're just never going to know you know we know that even if you test people now for serology if they were infected back in march there's a you know there's a reasonable possibility people would be seronegative so there's really no way of confirming it but at the end of the day actually for most of these things whether it was due to covid or not is not that relevant by this time because what the treatment that you need is really supportive it's exactly. it's um exactly. it, you know it's based on the symptoms it's about trying to help people re regain function mm. um and that sort of stuff for some things it might be there i think there's some evidence that there might be sort of persistent uh virus in olfactory bulbs <clears> and that sort of stuff if those are the kind of the things that you're getting but but for a lot of it it's not so I guess what it helps to it helps to delineate by what exactly the symptoms are. It helps to just focus on the the symptoms and uh, how to try and help people improve quality of life and regain function. And I think delineate research, research questions by the particular you know syndrome, whichever sort of post COVID type syndrome it is, and what the what the cause of that is. Um, but yeah, you raise an interesting point about vaccines as well, which I think is something we're going to have to think about in the in the surveillance era afterwards. It's called long COVID vaccine. Long COVID vaccine. Long, <laughs> see, long COVID. See, see the, we talked about those two Twitter polls. One Twitter poll, they love long COVID. Everything long COVID plays because it makes COVID's worse. It's worse than you think. And even if you don't have it bad, you could have it bad. So that's good for them. But then the other side, they're waiting for long COVID vaccine. Long COVID vaccine is the vaccine, everything related to the vaccine. I, um, yeah. I got a vaccine, then I got a car accident and... That was obviously due to the vaccine. <laughs> no, right. it's, yeah. it's, it was the next day. The, ne the very next day. The very day. next day. Because obviously I couldn't see that car coming at me. Right. Um, but anyway, we shall see. Um, I think it's, I mean, I guess what, what I would think is the right path is, of course, attribution should be carefully done. And um, to some degree, it doesn't matter where symptoms come from. They need to be treated. And I wrote something where I think we, you know, if, if a lot of people come in with um, anosmia and somebody gets the bright idea that let's try venlafaxine, let's just RCT that. RCT that, venlafaxine for anosmia. I mean, I don't know. I'm just making things up because that's what people will be doing actually quite soon. Quite soon. A lot of doctors will be making things up. Like, oh, let's try gabapentin. And the reason gabapentin didn't work is, of course, we didn't give you enough capsules. We got to keep increasing it until it works. Uh, well, you make a good point because you know yeah. because that is going to happen, mm -hmm. and that isn't what should happen. Because what <laughs> should happen is, of course, we sh there should be clinical trials. Yeah. Um, and I know that in I'm sure it's probably the same in the US and here we're having sort of long COVID uh, clinics set yes. up, so dedicated sort of clinics. And I mean, especially if you're going to centralize a service. Do a trial. Yeah, do a trial. It's so easy. <laughs> you need to do a trial. Just do yeah, a trial. Exactly. Just randomly assign people. And I, um, I will say but, one thing, though, about the long COVID services. Um, I don't know if you've gotten the memo, but um, hospital revenue is a bit low. It's a bit low in this country. <laughs> and we're not like NHS. We got to make that up. And so we have going to long COVID cardiac MR these people until it resolves, obviously, because you don't want to just stop the MR. So you want to keep them going until it looks like a normal heart. You need at least two normal scans. At least two well. normal. That's right. That's what I always tell. I always tell the trainees at least two normal. While I'm looking at the bank sheets, I look. I tell them at least maybe three normal if I if we're still in the red. But if we're in the black, mm. we'll leave with two normal. But I think there's a worry. I mean, obviously, the the pressures on these hospitals to to get their business back together is going to be strong. And mm. there's only so much arthroscopic surgery we can do. We we really there's only so much we can do on arthroscopic knee surgeries. 
Just put some more stents in. <laughs> There's got to be some stable disease somewhere. Um, yeah. So, okay, then the last thing I wanted to talk to you about, then I have to run. Schools. Um, uh, since we last talked, which I thought was, obviously I had assumed it was going to be the the most meaningful conversation in the United States and change everyone's mind uh, I don't know if may have fallen a bit short. That did but, not happen. Yeah, I don't know. I, did, I don't think it, I don't think it happened as I intended. Um, but I, I, I think you'll be you'll be pleased to know um, that um, schools in many places are still closed, and in other places they are actively trying to reopen. Um, you'll also be pleased to know that we don't let anything like local test positivity or rates of COVID affect those choices. Those choices are are completely independent of any of those data. Um, so that's that's the good news that they are made completely capriciously on a whim and and based on the lobbying power of the local teachers unions um uh, which is uh, probably the worst thing imaginable and um although many social activists um turn to twitter um for hashtag empowerment slogans um when it comes to this discriminatory action probably the greatest discriminatory action in the last quarter century in this country um because it will affect hispanic and black children much more uh and poor children much more than any other children um people are notoriously reticent so it's good to see that the advocates um, are keeping quiet uh, where it really, really matters. Um, I don't know. I, I saw you had a new review out. I read it. Of course, it is actually quite fair and quite balanced, I thought. You know, it was a terrific review of what we know and what we don't know about kids and viral transmission and risk to them. And, and you acknowledge Kawasaki, although you didn't dwell on it. Thank goodness. Um, so uh, I guess I'm, I'm thinking, you know, what's going on in the UK about schools? When you look over at this country, do you, do you guys like laugh i mean what, what do you how do, are, do you like cry i mean how do you how do you even look at us do we just it's just an I don't know. I mean, know it's, it? it's always difficult to talk about yeah it's hard to say you know what you think about the u.s because um you know you're 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 like a hundred different countries really <laughs> rolled into rolled into one because you know each state is doing its own thing um which you know it seems often is sort of based on uh whether it it's blue or red um, but I, I mean, I can say for the UK, so we're obviously um, in the middle of our second surge at the moment. You guys have raced ahead and gone gone for three surges, which is quite impressive. Uh, but we're just on number two and uh, we've kept schools open. Mm -hmm. So um, cases started rising really towards the end of August mm -hmm. and, uh, and took off quite explosively in September among young adults, which is what's happened elsewhere. Um, and, uh, and schools have stayed open here. And that's been the case in a lot of Western Europe, actually. So France and Spain both started their second surges before we did, um, and kept all of their schools open. Germany's schools are currently open. Italy's schools have been open. I think they're talking about possibly um closing secondary schools or um the older years in secondary education but because but... you were open you were unable to control the spread of the virus well it's interesting you should say that Vinay, because what we found is uh similar to what's happened in many other countries before including and uh, cover your ears anyone sweden oh sure. um during the first we'll, wave we'll put a sensor um... warning on this tr trigger warning <laughs> sweden yeah <laughs> But I said before that whatever whatever you think about whether about Sweden's response and um, whether it was you know uh, pure evil or pure brilliance or or something in between, what we did learn is that you can suppress transmission with schools fully operational because they continued in person education for children sixteen and under yeah. throughout. Uh, and you know it it, it's, it was very useful that they did that because. 
it wasn't you know a blind experiment this time for europe doing the same thing we realize you know it, it, we've seen that it's happened before and so there was a few countries before uh england who managed this so uh iceland had a really big second wave and kept yeah. schools open uh ireland as well uh managed to keep schools open and suppress transmission france was a few weeks ahead of us and brought their uh you know their cases crashing down with schools fully open and uh england uh has just turned the corner in the last few weeks we had a we had a a, a more almost complete national lockdown um and so you know the, you were not allowed to meet anyone from another household wow. indoors um you know all non-essential retail was closed so that was anything basically apart from you know uh, grocery stores what about playgrounds was... though did you strike where the virus is 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 the worst <laughs> <laughs> we somehow managed to keep that viral reservoir open you did throughout. you kept the playgrounds open <laughs> you kept the playgrounds open so you're saying you <laughs> ban dinner parties before you ban playgrounds and casinos it's wild i know but oh, yeah we wow. decided to close those things before we took away children's right to play and uh, for education but yeah but well yeah, you know I mean, hey it, alistair you should know that uh, closing the playground is no big deal because they haven't seen the pediatric cardiologist anyway so they can't go <laughs> that's right they can't go back anyway they can't, can't go get back, a clinical yeah. appointment until yeah. next april yeah. um but yeah i mean there, and 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 look it's been it's been tough i think the i think there was a lot of pressure from uh from teachers unions and teachers and uh, and understandably i think a lot of teachers felt quite quite scared because everyone else is you know is sort of working from home and they and you know they joined the the ranks of uh, essential workers you know the, you know the the acknowledgement that education was an essential yeah an essential service an yeah. essential activity and so like you know bus drivers and and people in grocery stores and stuff teachers teachers were were, were going to work even when cases were shooting through the roof and um you know all credit to them they've they've had an extremely difficult job because you know it doesn't matter even if you have zero transmission happen in schools at all if you if you know one or two in every hundred people in the country are infected you're going to get a lot of cases yeah. in a school with a thousand people in right. it what, you know whatever right. happens yeah. and the schools are having to manage that you know they're having to do their own sort of uh contact tracing elements and and phone health protection agencies and sort all that stuff out so you know they're taking on a huge burden of work um but uh, you know, it's meant that the vast majority of kids have managed to stay to stay in school, and uh, and you know, yeah, now cases are on the way down. Um, and we'll see what happens as things start to sort of gradually gradually reopen. But what I think what's really useful is the UK has um, a uh, a method of testing that is not based on symptoms. So we've got two surveys, right, that run uh, with large scale random population sampling. So hmm. uh, one of the big issues that people always complain about with the case numbers in kids is that we don't test enough kids because they don't get enough symptoms, right. which that's, is true. You know, yeah, to an extent sure. that's true. And, and it's never been clear to what extent we were under testing. But obviously we don't get that with these with these surveys. And what we found was that very reassuringly uh, when, well, I mean, to, you can look at it two ways, but when there was an explosion in cases, it was in young adults. Yeah. So it was in people sort of aged uh, 17 to, to 25. Who are still um, probably meeting up on dates and things like that, whether anyone wants to believe it or not, that's happening. Exactly. Yeah. 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 So that's where it exploded. Now, um, behind that, the second highest rates were actually in, in secondary school aged children. Mm -hmm. So these are children sort of aged 12 to 16. And to some extent, that was expected because when we've seen from the, the literature that when cases get really high in the community, you do get outbreaks in schools, yes. primarily amongst older, older adolescents. Yes. And you've got to remember that at the time, basically, 
half the country because we have regional lockdowns half the country basically wasn't allowed to socialize at all um and the other half of the country people are still having to work from home and you can't meet up more than six people so essentially the only people who were whose life was almost normal were school children because ah, they were still going to school and having in-person yeah. education so you're, mm-hmm. you're getting a lot more mixing in those age groups mm. so interestingly they follow behind now uh what was particularly fascinating was that then after cases started rising in almost all other age groups eventually they also started rising in primary school aged children I children see. aged two two to eleven mm-hmm. um and they eventually came up and reached uh, a similar sort of plateau to where uh, other adults rates have been but this is what's been seen elsewhere is the young adults set the trend behind which the children follow and this is the opposite of what we would normally expect for you know respiratory viruses and it's been particularly fascinating to see that the youngest children who are the who are the group that everyone has been most concerned about because they are you know the snotty coughing you know disease vectors that uh that everyone worries about um were the group that you know came that cases started increasing behind it uh, behind everyone else and never exceeded the rates that we had in adults in fact was much lower than most other adult uh, groups so uh, it's been really interesting and to see then as the cases dropped in adults then uh, you know about a week later they then started falling in 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 children as well so that's been a really interesting pattern to observe in real time with with data that's unbiased by the sampling method because it's random testing that's well put Alistair Monroe, thank you so much for your time. Uh, I appreciate all these discussions. And, uh, and listeners should follow you on Twitter for some, for some sense. Perhaps listeners should try to correct the incredible polarization by, by, by liking and retweeting things that, uh, that strike the appropriate balance. Um, and uh, I'll be looking on your side of the pond when uh, what we have done in the U.S. really manifests itself in the next 10 and 20 years. Uh, and we take a generation of kids deprive them of school, further inequality, and uh, the civil unrest that will ensue. Um, I hope you have some jobs open for me then, because I need to, I'm going to have to, I'm going to have to get out of, (laughs) get out of Dodge uh, when it gets really hot. Um, Because I do worry, I think it's going to be the most destabilizing event in the country that was already, it's already on the brink. Um, And it's still ongoing as well. It's still ongoing. You know, we'll, we'll see what happens. You've got a new administration coming. Yeah. Winter can't last forever. Vaccines are on the way. Let's hope. Let's hope. Let's hope. Let's hope. Alistair Monroe, thanks so much. Thank you. You've been listening to Season 3 of Plenary Session. Plenary Session is produced by Kiana Klossner. Music by Ian Straley and Audrey Tran. The views expressed on Plenary Session are those of whoever said it and no one else. Plenary Session is not medical advice. Follow us on Twitter at plenary underscore session. Until next time.